0: Hello and welcome to The Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stammell-Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book White Sails Shaking by Ira Henry Freeman. This is the sixth part of the reading, and we're beginning the fifth story. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner to help support the podcast. Or you can check out The Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week. Or, of course, The Mariner YouTube channel where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. 5. The Wild Voyage by Irving Johnson The fastest sailboats in the world are the great, long, skinny, rule-cheating machines built exclusively and at monstrous expense for one brief purpose, racing for the America's Cup. Everything a seagoing yacht is not these greyhounds probably constitute the worst possible design for an ocean passage. Irving Johnson, a professional yacht skipper, had the rare and highly uncomfortable experience of sailing one of these attenuated racers, Thomas Lipton's Shamrock 5, home to England after her defeat off Long Island in 1930. The top-heavy sloop rig used for racing in smooth water had been cut down to that of a yawl, and crude living accommodations had been hastily knocked together within the empty hull. That was hardly enough to fit the boat for blue water. The 19-day crossing from Newport to the Solent in mid-October was an unrelieved wild voyage, as Captain Johnson describes it. We made sail at Brenton Reef Lightship, off which the recent races had been sailed, and let go the towline just at nightfall. So far, so good but it gave one a queer feeling, standing out to sea in such an outfit. We were on a racing boat, not a craft built to withstand stress of weather. She had a makeshift rig that hadn't been tested, and the crew weren't feeling tip-top, hadn't gotten over their final land spree, and I knew we were in for an uncomfortable time. We were much pleased that first evening, with the speed the ship was making close-hauled in a moderate breeze. A bright moon was shining, and the waves were breaking in white caps. When the morning watch turned out at four o'clock, a northeaster, which had been gentle, was becoming fresh, and the ship had a very quick motion because of her long ends and deep heavy keel. The wind was cold, and spray had started coming aboard. All the hatches were battened down during the night, and by morning things were getting rather stuffy below. I was the only one to eat a proper breakfast, The captain didn't even take morning sights, so I took three. I felt fine on deck, but while below trying to work out the sights, I found that a breathing spell in the open air was necessary every few minutes. Once I stayed down too long and had to feed the fishes just as every other man on board had done before me. It seems that during the night when the side lights and lanterns were being filled, a lot of oil and kerosene was spilled on the floor and down in the bilge, then, when the cook lighted his oil stove, what a cloud of smoke there was, and what a smell of half burned oil! That was the most disagreeable oil stove you can imagine. It was a wickless invention that only half burned the oil, and the ceiling for twenty feet around was solid black with soot. The stagnant air, filled with smoke and smells, combined with the erratic motions of the ship, made our stomachs turn somersaults. The cook was too sick to prepare much to eat, and we didn't want to eat anyway. Whenever we went below and got in a few whiffs from the smoky oil burner, it was too much for us. Who ever heard before of a whole gang of deep-sea sailors getting seasick like that? Talk about a goofy ship. Certainly, ours was one. Just before noon, the still-drunk cook started to put oil in the stove. He spilled it, of course, making the floor in front of his stove as slippery as ice in his bewildered mind he thought the best way to dry the floor was to burn off the oil so he touched a match to it and as the oil blazed up he got down on his knees and watched the glowing flame with his crazy bulging bloodshot eyes there is probably nothing worse than a fire on a sailing ship at sea and as i dashed up behind him in his kneeling posture i did the natural thing and gave him a vigorous kick we quickly put out the fire and he never lit the floor again. If the fire had gotten a little more start, there would have been no shamrock for us to take back across the sea. I came on watch at midnight with the ship doing nine and a half knots, and the wind freshening all the time. At four in the morning, with a moderate gale, we were doing just over twelve knots. I went below and told the captain what speed we were making, and without leaving his bunk, he yelled, Take in the mainsail! Take in the mizzen! Reef the fore staysail! Soon the wind was a strong gale and we were running before it under reefed forstacell. The seas were peaking up in queer fashion for we were in the Gulf Stream with a northeaster blowing against the current. At about ten o'clock on my morning watch with Peterson at the wheel, a huge sea broke through the heavy canvas weathercloth in the mizzen rigging and sent Peterson's feet higher than his head. Luckily for him, he held on like grim death. If he hadn't, he would have gone right over the lifelines. He landed on his knees but was still tall enough to see over the wheel like an ordinary man and what a look came over his face when he tried to find the compass. He couldn't see it and he blinked away thinking there must be too much salt water in his eyes and then suddenly he realised that the compass was gone. The whole binnacle stand, compass and all, had vanished along with the wave. I grabbed the wheel and helped Peterson steer so the fore stasel wouldn't jibe for if it did it would go in one slat. Now that we had no compass to guide us, we gauged our course by the wind, and as soon as possible took in the sail and ran dead before the gale under bare poles. That was the only thing we could do. The deck bolts that held the binnacle had been sheared off by the force of the sea, so that the binnacle, including the stand and compass, had taken a bounce on deck and then been swept overboard. Soon the wind had increased to a full gale, and heavy water came aboard from both sides. We had lashed two men at the wheel and found that the Seas usually knocked down only one man at a time. That left the other one standing to keep the wheel from revolving. One of the things we dreaded most was to have the wheel get to whirling uncontrolled, because if that happened, and the rudder swung hard over, the steering gear was likely to break. The two men were lashed with their backs to the mizzenmast, which was only two or three feet after the wheel. Right up until noon, the wind kept blowing harder, and then it suddenly dropped to a flat calm. Peterson found himself in the middle of a sentence yelling loudly above the roar of the storm when, quick as a flash, there wasn't any roar. We thought this was a queer way for a storm to end, but there we were in a calm, and most of us figured that we soon would be able to set sail for England. The skipper wasn't so sure. The barometer was dropping, and he wanted to watch it. Fifteen minutes later, We found the barometer was still going down, and in half an hour it was even lower, but there wasn't any wind. By that time we had guessed what the trouble was. We were in the exact centre of a hurricane, and we knew that the second half always is the worst. There was nothing we could do about it except wait. We had no motor, and no radio, and even if a ship had come along we probably couldn't have boarded her in that great jumble of a crisscross sea. We could only cling to the shamrock as she rolled, pitched and slammed about with that terrific snapping motion found only on extreme racing boats with short, deep keels. An hour passed and still nothing happened, but in another ten minutes the wind struck us as if with all the fury stored up in an hour's waiting. The water was just picked up from the tops of the waves and passed through the air, blowing horizontally and getting thicker all the time. In the Shamrock logbook is the following entry. Visibility, 25 feet. This was in broad daylight, yet seeing was practically impossible because of all the water blowing along the surface. Most of the crew were huddled amidships, where some lashed themselves to the lifeboats to get relief from the strain of standing and holding on, while others held on with their legs around the boat lashings. The two men at the wheel ran the Shamrock before the wind, not knowing nor caring what course we were making. The only time we could look aft was when we were down in the trough behind a sea. Then the wind blew the water along over our heads and it just sort of rained down on us. The worst part of looking back was the huge ugly breaking sea coming up aft which nearly gave us heart failure. The shamrock's low narrow hull and short masts with their scanty rigging presented little surface to the wind. Yet our ship's log showed that the hurricane was forcing us through the water at ten and a half knots, without even a single foot of canvas to help us. The two men, who were lashed at the wheel, were having a tough time of it, for the wheel kicked and the big seas knocked them about. Men frequently were washed around the deck, in danger of being carried overboard at any time. There were waves dashing at us that would crush a man down, no matter how hard he tried to stand up under them. I didn't suppose such waves were bred, except at Cape Horn. The whole crew were getting weak, partly from lack of food, because in that weather the cook just wasn't able to prepare any, and partly owing to the strain of hanging on. Besides, they didn't get sleep enough. Suddenly, a man came running up from below and bawled out, Hey, the ship's sinking! There are six or seven feet of water in the bilge! Sure enough, the water in the bilge was banging up under the floorboards, We had two pumps, but they were way out at the sides of the ship, close to the three-inch rail. So all we could do now was to hope that the hurricane would ease up enough to allow us to pump before the shamrock went down. "'Where's the water coming in?' I asked the fellow who had come from below. "'Right through the deck,' he said. The steep seas had wrenched the long ends of the shamrock, and now from stem to stern her deck was little better than a sieve. Finally, the wind eased off enough for us to stay at our pumps.' But after a few minutes pumping we felt weak. That was because of seasickness the day before and having nothing to eat since. We had to have something to get strength for pumping but when we looked for food down below we found the cardboard cartons that held most of it soaked with water and fallen apart allowing our food supplies to spill all over the place. We ate a few apples and went on pumping. Soon the pump suctions clogged and we did more investigating To save weight for the Shamrock's racing career, the cabin floor was not built out to the sides of the vessel. Some of the water-soaked loaves of bread and a lot of tomatoes, apples and all sorts of canned goods and junk had washed down at the side of the floor into the bilge. This meant that somebody had to stick his head and shoulders down in the cold, dirty water to pull the stuff away from the pump suctions. And what a mess there was! We took stock of the food that was left and found little fit for use except our canned goods and some fruit. Often we had three men at the pumps working in a very awkward position way out at the rail. Morning showed us more of a mess below than we had thought possible. Everybody and everything were soaking wet and there wasn't a dry square inch anywhere. Below deck was so damp and sticky that we couldn't even dry our clothes on us while we slept. One of our first jobs was to nail some old canvas over the larger holes in the deck and next the mainsail had to be repaired we soon found our ships position by taking sights and although we were only 400 miles from bristol where we started getting back at that time of year when southwesterly gales were expected would be almost impossible the next best thing was to head straight for england by the northerly route which is the shortest the last shamrock to go back had taken 46 days We knew we would starve in that length of time and we planned to shorten the trip by driving our ship to the limit in order to get to port before our canned goods gave out entirely. Twenty hours we had been under bare poles running before the wind and now that we wanted to get back on our course we felt more than ever the loss of our steering compass. To our surprise a second compass was found in the lifeboat and spirits went up but only to droop again when we discovered that it failed to fit in the binnacle. Nevertheless, we rigged it up after a fashion on top of the steering box. When the little light that we rigged up for the compass went out, a sailor would stand and hold the flashlight where it shone on the compass so the man at the wheel could see to steer until the little lamp was ready for use again. Another sailor would grip onto the gearbox with his legs, untie the little light and grope across the unsteady deck to the lifelines along the side, and after their aid for 10 or 12 feet, he would stoop low, waiting for a steady moment, and then make a quick but cautious dive for the companionway a half dozen feet distant. Down below, he would experiment in all sorts of ways to find out what was the matter. After monkeying around with the little light for about ten minutes, the sailor would light it and start up the companionway. Perhaps he would no more than get his head outside, then a puff of wind would blow out the light. Then he would say a few impolite and even insulting things to it, and go down the stairs to start monkeying anew. But in the end, we would get the light tied back in its place and at its job. It might go out 20 or more times in a single night. No wakeful baby could have been more of a trial. The crew cussed it for an awful nuisance, but you couldn't have hired them to part with it in our predicament. We were now sailing along in the warm water of the Gulf Stream, and the wind and temperature were gentle by contrast with what we had been having. We all ate down below at a table built in just after the mainmast. Forward of the mast was the cook's odorous oil stove. There was a bench lashed on each side of the table for us to sit on, and the captain sat in a little folding seat at the end. The table had sides on it to keep things from sliding off, but the sides were only three inches high – they should have been at least five. We had a tablecloth. It was a wet bedspread, which helped keep the dishes from sliding – a dry bedspread would have been too slippery. Above one end of the table was a hatch and at almost any time a big sea swashing over the deck would spurt in around the edges of the hatch cover. A fellow holding onto his tin plate with one hand and gripping the table with the other would probably get soaked, food and all. We were in an awkward position on our long benches and couldn't get out of the way quickly enough. The only fellow who had much chance was the one at the end of the bench. Only he made a lively enough jump to escape a ducking and had the laugh on the rest of us. For several days after getting out of the main part of the Gulf Stream, we ran right through streaks of warm and cold water. October 8th, another gale came along, and this time it was from the east. So we slammed the old Shamrock to the northeast, which was as close to her course as we could get, and there we held her until the sea got so rough that we couldn't stand it any longer. And then we ran under bare poles, but kept the wind on our quarter, so as not to go back on our course any more than we could really help. My bunk was opposite the middle of the mess table, where it missed most of the water that came down the hatch, and from around the mast. Besides, the bunk above it helped shed the wetness somewhat. I had the cook's greasy canvas apron to protect me from leakage down over my face as I slept, and whenever I left the bunk I hurriedly covered it with an old blanket to keep out as much stray water as possible. The captain cut up an old sail and hung it over his own bunk to shed the water. The sailors slept in their oilskins, Most of them got thrown out of their bunks at times over the foot-high bunk boards, and all but two finally shifted to the sail bin, which had sides two and a half feet high. The two who didn't change had their bunks amidships, where the motion wasn't so violent. During this gale, the cook scolded himself five times, and once all the hot food went on the floor, along with the hot water heater, which afterward I wired back on the stove. During the big blows, everybody was wet and cold while on deck, tired from no sleep and hungry from no eats, and we went around with faces a mile long. We often talked quietly of the probability that the yacht would go to the bottom in the next half hour, and we were so beaten down, mentally and physically, that sinking seemed the easiest way out of our misery. Not until the afternoon of the second day of running before the wind did the easterly gale give way to a good southwesterly breeze, and then we set full sail and once more, we're headed for England. Next morning, the wind hauled aft a bit, and sometimes we made 13 and three-quarter knots, and we must have done well over 15 during squalls. Bad seas broke aboard now and then, but it was worth a dollar, a look, to see her shooting along on top of a huge wave. Up to noon, we had made 306 miles in 23 and one-half hours, the fastest time on our trip, and a record-breaking speed for a craft of that type. Everything on the vessel was wet, dirty and smelly, but our good speed kept us fairly cheerful. On the 19th, the distance to the Lizard was less than 300 miles. I took over the watch at midnight with a moderate gale abeam. The gale increased, and we took in the mizzen. Suddenly, a strand of the weather backstay parted with a bang, so we put a stopper on it and took in the jib. This was done none too soon, because by then a he-man's gale was underway on our quarter, with full mainsail and four staysail, we logged nearly 14 knots from midnight to four in the morning, and on the right course, so I hated to take in that mainsail. What a row the shamrock had with old man Ocean. It was the wildest night of the whole voyage, because we were driving her to the limit. You can't imagine a heavy gale shifting from south-southwest to northwest in five seconds, and yet it did. We had to run south, right into the tremendous seas until all hands came on deck to jibe over. Several of the deep sea sailors said afterward, we never had been scared before, but we sure were that time. Why the ship didn't break in two when we dropped off the edge of those seas we were heading into, I don't know. It wouldn't have taken as long to get to the bottom, because we were halfway there already in the trough of those waves. In the early morning of the 20th, we found three little land birds on the deck, I thought of how Columbus saw landbirds when he was nearly across the Atlantic, and I knew just how he felt after sailing so long without seeing anything connected with land. He was sure he was getting somewhere, and so were we. The deck, for the first time since we started, was really dry, and not until then had there been a day of our voyage when we could stand more than thirty seconds without hanging on. But that night we picked up Bishop Rock Light on the Scilly Isles, just where it ought to be. And were a beam 18 days one and one half hours from Brenton Reef off Newport. We had the lizard a beam in the early morning and like sailing ships for hundreds of years we made our signal to be seen by the government signal station near the lighthouse. Our signal was Lima, Papa, Tango, November for Shamrock 5 and from the signal station the news went out to the world that she had arrived in the English Channel A quarter mile from the mooring at Southampton, a motorboat took our line so we could drop our sails before making fast. Then customs men, port officials and newspaper reporters came aboard while we were packing and cleaning up to go ashore. We carried along part of our baggage, engaged rooms and went to the immigration offices to have our passports stamped and then we indulged in a Turkish bath and a big feed. Night had come now and as I hadn't shut my eyes for 22 hours, sleep in a nice big feathery bed was a luxury. The last thing I was conscious of was vowing that if a Shamrock 6 came challenging across the sea she would have to get back as best she could without me. Well that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next installment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly and remember of course you've got all the content over on YouTube and The Mariner Podcast, and of course Patreon at patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.